0: The larger these stablecoins are, right, the more adoption there is and the more stable they're likely to be. But then the worse and more contagious the effect is if it fails. It's almost like you have to be really big in order for it to be stable. But once you get that big, the cost of failure is immense. Hello
1: there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini. The only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and before we get into today's interview, I do have a lesson for my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provides online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a bank, and they also understand Bitcoin, and they reached out to me, so I've moved my business banking across to BCB, and I could not be happier. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Compass Mining, but they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for nine months with Compass now, and I've already mined 0.66 Bitcoin, which has paid off two of my S19s already. Now, any of you can start mining with Compass Mining, And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors like price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes Bitcoin mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right. We're hodlers, we're not sellers. I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. So all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I've recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share your important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching, and the app is designed to make it super easy to set up your wallet and back up your private keys. Now, if you want to find out more and check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google App Stores. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you for coming to do this because it was quite short notice. Um, of course,
0: I'm in the neighborhood, so it's a pleasure.
1: Perfect, perfect. Um, okay. I saw your thread about Terra, and strangely enough, the whole Terra Luna thing kind of mostly passed me by because hmm. I'm mainly focused on Bitcoin. Um, It mainly passed me by until all the news came out that they were buying a shit ton of Bitcoin. But even then, I didn't pay too much attention to it. And then I was with Pomp. I was on his show and uh, we started to talk about it. He explained it to me and there was just something about it that felt a little bit block one, a little bit shady, a little bit like someone's found a way for them to accumulate a load of Bitcoin. But I had no idea that the kind of fundamentals of the algorithm for their stablecoin was uh, completely broken. And the reason I care about this a lot is because uh, I spend a lot of time with Alex Gladstein. I talk to him a lot. And whilst people want to promote Bitcoin to you know those living under high inflation or under authoritarian rule, he actually says stablecoins are actually a better tool for people in, in these regions. They, they need price stability, especially if they are you know, generally cash poor. They don't need a fluctuating asset. So I, I accept stablecoins are useful and important. But at the same time, if there are stablecoins designed in a way that's super risky, that, uh, I mean, we know with this uh, terror situation and Luna, a lot of people have lost a lot of money. So if they're super risky, I think it's really important for us to understand which stablecoins are best and why. So there's the setup. Um, But before we get in, it can you just introduce yourself? Because uh, I'm not sure if everyone will know who you are.
0: For sure. John Wu, I'm head of growth at Aztec Network. Aztec Network is a private ZK rollup on Ethereum, so I'm in the Ethereum ecosystem. I came up in the world, TradFi guy, very suited, um, was a management consultant, worked in private equity. I went to Harvard Business School, not the typical anti-institutional you know, rebel with a cause type person who gets into crypto, but I really fell into the rabbit hole because I had a couple friends from 2018 who were investing and they said, You know, maybe you didn't really understand Bitcoin when you bought it and sold it for a loss in 2013. Have that story like many others. Uh Um, But you might be interested in this decentralized finance thing. You know, you come from a TradFi background. And so I I began by studying Uniswap, the world's largest decentralized exchange. I was lucky enough to work there very, very briefly in business development. And, uh, you know, I just really fell down the rabbit hole uh, specifically around permissionless finance. And that's what got me interested in the space. And I decided to work on privacy infrastructure because, you know, the space being very values oriented, one of the things that we need going forward is privacy. Uh, if we're ever going to get to self sovereignty and financial independence, I think privacy is a critical part of it. Um, but I've kept up with the entire space and specifically stablecoins because I've been so interested in stablecoin mechanisms. Um, for a long time. And so, yeah, I've been covering this stuff for over a year now.
1: And are you still a Bitcoin person?
0: Yeah, I own Bitcoin. I I wouldn't say I'm a Bitcoin maxi by any means. I work in the Ethereum ecosystem. I think the amount of impact that crypto has to offer for the world requires more programmability, but, you know, maybe for later in the cast.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, mean, it's it's a Bitcoin show. Occasionally, I have... um... I've had Lane Rettig on the show a couple of times. Yeah, Lane's yeah, a friend. Yeah, great guy. I'm probably gonna see him this week. Um I like talking to him about uh alternative currencies because I think he's very honest. Yes. He's very honest about the situation with Ethereum or any other um alternative protocol. Uh and whilst it's a Bitcoin show, and I am probably kind of a Bitcoin maxi, <laughs> I don't mind Monero. I'm not like I'm not as hateful on ETH as I used to be in that um again trying to understand stable coins it feels to me that they're best placed on uh, other protocols than on the bitcoin protocol i know we had tether on the omni layer before but that has some certain issues with it i'm mainly out of my depth with this stuff but at the same time if there are products out there that people can access and use and that means they can access dollars yeah i certainly need to pay attention to it be aware of it you know appreciate what it is um, but we can debate Ethereum another <laughs> another day. Yeah. I definitely want to get into the whole Terra Luna thing, because I thought your thread was brilliant. We'll share it in the show notes. Let people go read it. it. Uh, but two things stood out to me. Um, as I was going through, I was like, oh, God, I've got so many questions. And secondly, um, most people in the world, I don't think, want to have to understand the complexities of these products and these algorithms to be able to hold a dollar. Yep. So, for me, in its simplest form, a fully backed dollar is probably one of the best scenarios as long as you know it's backed. And I know there's questions around that. These algorithmic stable coins seem to have some fundamental issues. Yeah. Now, if we're going to design new dollars, they need to be stable. And calling them stable coins when they can crash and lose tens of billions of dollars in right. a very short amount of time is very scary. And also, to be honest, uh, I've read a lot of stories about people people have been completely fucked by this.
0: The human toll is, yeah, unimaginable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, you must have read some of it as well.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Awful. I also think the uh,
1: behavior of Duquan was particularly overconfident. And I don't like the idea of there being a Luna 2. Um, but we can get into all of that. Let's go imagine, you know, do the whole, like, explain it like I'm five. Let's talk about, I want to get into what uh, Terra and Luna are and were, and why they were fundamentally broken.
0: Yeah, uh, it might be helpful to just walk through the day I wrote the thread. Yeah. And so that was uh, Monday. Um, Boy, now I'm forgetting the actual day date, but that was Monday. Um, Two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago. Um, And I, I have a day job, and I was watching the DPEG happen in real time, and... I was like, wow, nobody is covering why this happened. And I had done a bunch of research on Luna around the abracadabra crash that we can get into back in February. And I would covered Iron Titan and Faye and some other stablecoin failures or stablecoin issues. So I was kind of well positioned to cover it. And you know, I started digging in and I realized this was an algo failure like any other. So it's worth talking about what Terra is. Terra purported to be a network to support an ecosystem of stable currencies. They had actually had a bunch of real-world use and adoption. Um, there was this Korean payments application called Chai that's like Venmo for Korea. They had adopted UST. And the point of the network was to facilitate transactions in stable coins, specifically their flagship stablecoin, UST, which is a dollar-pegged, undercollateralized algorithmic stable. It's worth kind of just breaking out a couple of those things, right? Yeah. So
1: undercollateralized already concerns me.
0: So let's start with undercollateralized, which means there's no, quote unquote, hard collateral for every dollar of UST in circulation. And so a hard collateralized protocol would be something like MakerDAO, which you might have heard of, Mm -hmm. where one DAI is collateralized by more than a dollar of volatile cryptocurrency. And it's more than a dollar because the underlying collateral is volatile. And so if you just had a dollar, well, you could quickly become under collateralized if the volatile collateral slipped. So USD was under collateralized. For a long time, it it had zero, quote unquote, hard collateral. And so it was only collateralized by Luna. And we'll get to that dynamic in a little bit. Uh, The second word is algorithmic. So algorithmic just means smart contracts govern the pegging mechanism to make it stable. Uh, The third word is stable currency, which means that it should be low volatility, right? Uh, There are higher volatility stable currencies out there, but. Um, In general, you want it to be pegged as closely as possible to the uh, reference currency. And in this case, the reference currency is the US dollar. And so that is what UST was purported to be. Now, the way I analogize UST, the relationship between UST, which is the dollar peg stable, and Luna, which is the governance token and security token of the network, is to use a TradFi analogy. And the traditional finance analogy I would make is something like a Visa network, which has two predominant securities. Uh, one is Visa equity, which we're all familiar with. And Visa equity gives you uh, ownership in the network and gives you a share, a claim on a share of the network revenue. That is fundamentally what equity is. Mm-hmm. And then imagine if Visa also had a Visa coin, which was essentially a coin pegged to the US dollar. And Visa's promise to you is the way that Visa coin has value is anytime uh, you want to exchange Visa coin, we'll give you $1 worth of Visa equity. Okay. So if Visa stock were at $10, for instance, and I wanted to exchange one Visa coin, I would get one tenth of a share of Visa back. So it's just like UST Luna, it's not hard collateralized. It's this kind of circular thing where the currency on the network is backed by an ownership share of the network.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm following you.
0: So that's roughly the way that it worked. So Now, the question is, why would anyone want to use VisaCoin or to go back to the Luna case? Why would anyone want to use UST? Um, You need it to gain wide adoption, right? Um, The reason why people were incentivized to use UST was they paid you 20% per year through something called anchor protocol to hold it.
1: This was my first red flag. Right. It's quite a high interest range.
0: Right now, Anchor Protocol launched uh, at a time when there were yield farms, three figure yield farms, you know, hundred percent, two hundred percent. So twenty percent—it's hard to believe now that we're in kind of a bear market. It seemed like a very reasonable rate at the time.
1: Can we can we go back a step here? How can any yield farm generate a hundred percent in returns? How are they doing this? Because again. I know little about yield farms, but the little I do know is that some of them, they work until the rug pull happens, and then they collapse.
0: I don't think that's a horrible mental model. I would, <laughs> I would, I would think of it like yield farms are created. The high APRs are created by inflationary rewards, and inflationary rewards, again, to analogize to traditional finance, means I'm handing out equity. Now, imagine if you invested in a business that said, if you do something that benefits the business, we will issue you a bunch of share-based compensation. Okay. We'll give you more shares in the underlying company. So if you do something that helps Visa Network, we'll just give you more Visa equity. Now, at today's dollar rate, at today's dollar valuation of Visa equity, that seems like I'm making a lot of money. Uh-huh. Now, Is that sustainable? You have to ask yourself whether the inflation rate of the equity is sustainable. Probably not. So it's not clear, but we haven't seen very sustainable yield farming strategies because extremely high inflation is not sustainable.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You can't prop up the value of the underlying and emit a large quantity of it into the circulating supply forever it's probably not going to happen.
1: So when these happen and these yield farms collapse, who are the losers? Is it the bag holder? Is it, is it a game of chicken?
0: Yeah, I would I would say it is a game of chicken, but no different from any other marketplace, right? You know, when SaaS multiples collapsed over the last couple months and the likes of Peloton and Zoom and Snap all went down 80 90%, who are the bag holders? The people who didn't quite realize that you know, multiples would contract. Now, this is maybe a slightly different case. You could you could say that uh, high emissions are destined to bring prices down. Um, I wouldn't necessarily argue against that.
1: I mean, I would say that the difference with something like Peloton is that it was a company that produced a product that has a revenue model that hopefully would deliver uh, um, dividends at some point. And sadly, what happened is the business couldn't keep up with the growth trajectory. And therefore, it eventually collapsed and collapsed quickly. And they had some other, obviously, internal issues. I I see the comparisons, but what I find with these kind of crypto products is then they don't tend to have an actual product itself.
0: So it's worth talking about the circularity in the context of Luna UST. Yeah. The dream with Terra Luna was the more UST is adopted, the more transactions happen on the network. And just like Visa, the more transactions happen on the network, the more the network processors, in this case, the network validators, the ones actually executing the transactions, get in terms of fees. And the more they get in terms of fees, the more fundamental value Luna should have.
1: Hold on, would it, would it be actually fair in some ways to compare this to almost the bootstrap in a Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin had an inflation rate in some ways. But Bitcoin has managed to sustain its price with new uh, people adopting Bitcoin at a rate that is outperformed, generally outperformed the inflation rate of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin had a decreasing inflation rate.
0: Yes. I think that's a very reasonable way to think about it. Okay. That anchor protocol, which is essentially the high yield savings account of Luna UST, was meant to be an initial bootstrapping phase. Yeah. Now, it didn't, if you really think about it, last all that long, right? Um, and so, yeah, the 20% sounds like a lot, you know? Let's say, you know, at the peak, I believe the circulation of UST was 15 billion. So, and something like 70%, so let's call it 10 billion was staked. And they were giving away 20% a year. So they were giving away $2 billion a year to get people to adopt this thing. Now, that sounds nominally like a really high number, but Luna's market cap was something like $60 billion. And so one of the things they were doing was liquidating the Luna token to put into the anchor protocol reserve to pay out this high APR rate. And one mechanism we actually haven't touched on yet is the redemption between Luna and UST,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is that you can always redeem one UST for $1 of Luna. And that would be burning a UST and then minting $1 worth of Luna. And so the supplies of UST and Luna are inversely related. So the more UST there is, the less Luna there is. So Luna must be burned to create UST. And when UST is redeemed, it goes back into Luna. So that's the relationship yeah. between those two tokens, um, and the idea with Anchor Protocol was, if everyone believes in Luna, then the price of Luna goes up. Then, if a, if one Luna is worth a lot, it can be burned to mint a ton of UST. It can also be sold into the open market and fill up the Anchor Protocol reserve to pay out UST holders. So there's this really great reflexive upcycle where when the number goes up, the supply of UST goes up, Luna gets sold to fill up the anchor protocol reserve. All the UST holders get a sustainable 20% on their income. Uh, The Luna supply goes down, which further compresses the price upward because you're burning supply. And for the same level of demand, the price of Luna should go up. Um, so, there's this really amazing reflexive upcycle that you can imagine might get you to extremely wide UST adoption. And if UST is adopted very widely and used commonly between people, right? Let's say, you know, we went to Five Leaves today and you got a burger and I paid for it and you Venmoed me in UST and we were used to using UST in our day-to-day, then there's really no reason to exit. Right At some point, UST becomes as good as money to you. That was really the goal. Right, okay, but. (laughs) But, now in this specific failure case, um, well, it's worth rewinding back to February. Back in February, there was this entire ecosystem headed up by this guy, Daniele Sesta, who's a Ethereum developer not Ethereum core developer, but a, a developer on the uh-huh. on the Ethereum ecosystem and others uh, who created a lending protocol called Abracadabra. Now, off the bat, it's called Abracadabra and their stable currency was called magic internet money. So I'll, I'll leave hey. you and the listeners to make whatever assumptions about that as you will. But it was a very legitimate protocol in terms of the mechanism. And without getting too deep in the weeds, it was a lending protocol. It allowed you to commit collateral and then mint a stable coin. And so that's not very different if you're familiar with MakerDAO where you get to put down volatile underlying and then mint a stable loan against it. And if the underlying goes below a certain level, then your position gets liquidated and your collateral gets taken. So kind of standard lending protocol. Mm -hmm. But what abracadabra allowed you to do was recursively borrow uh, MIM, swap it for UST, stake it in anchor protocol, turn it into a staking token called AUST, and then put it back into Abracadabra as collateral and then mint more MIM and repeat the cycle. Okay. Now, the most important takeaway of this like recursive lending thing is that it allows you to access extremely high leverage. Mm. And so you run the recursive loop a couple times and your 20% APR in Anchor, as long as you can borrow money at less than 20%, becomes much bigger than 20. And so in this degen box strategy, people were able to yield you know, 100% APRs. Um, the problem is there's a lot of leverage in that system now. Yep. And that increases the sensitivity of your lending position to the underlying collateral. And because the collateral was UST denominated, people were lulled into a false sense of security. They were like, the underlying collateral is stable collateral. So as long as UST holds peg, we're good. Now, the problem is, in that case, UST didn't hold peg because there was a bit of a panic and people sold a bunch of UST and it pushed the price of UST down. And it started liquidating lending positions.
1: How much did... How much did it lose its peg by at that
0: time? That time, I believe it lost its peg by like 8%. So it got okay. down to like 92 cents. Okay. I'll have to double check my facts on that, but I believe but it got down to 92.
1: Not not good, but not catastrophic.
0: Not catastrophic unless you have something like a 92% levered UST position that's really sensitive to the price of the underlying. Now, the problem with these recursive lending things is once Collateral starts getting liquidated. The collateral, I'll remind you in this case, is UST denominated. So more UST gets dumped on the open market and drops the price of UST further, which then liquidates more. And that creates this liquidation cascade. Like a that
1: contagion happens. effect.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Now, because of the way Luna UST works, when UST is below peg, you can always get a dollar worth of Luna for it. So if UST is at 92 cents, you can always redeem this thing that's only worth 92 cents and get something that's worth a dollar, a dollar of Luna.
1: Hold on, so there's another cycle you can perform there to arbitrage.
0: So there's always that um, redemption mechanism between UST and Luna. You can always redeem 90 you can always redeem 1 UST regardless of what its market value is for $1 of Luna.
1: But could then could you then buy $100 of UST at an eight percent discount. Redeem that for a hundred dollars of Luna. Sell Luna on the open market.
0: Yes, that's exactly what they're hoping you will do. And the reason why that's part of the peg stability mechanism is because you purchasing UST on the open market increases the demand, and it should bring it back up to a dollar. Right.
1: Uh, okay, okay. I see. So that should close so the arbitrage. The, arb- the arb. The arb
0: itself closes itself. It should close yeah. itself. Now the hard part about it closing itself is. Let's talk about the second part, right? You buy a bunch of UST, which supports the UST price, and you redeem it for Luna, but then what do you do with that Luna? You dump it immediately, Mm -hmm. because you want to make sure you get your 8 cent ARB. Mm -hmm. You don't want to hold Luna while it's falling. But the more people do that, the lower the price of Luna goes. Right. And the lower the price of Luna, the more Luna has to be created in order to support UST redemptions. Which creates inflation. And that creates this runaway, what people call the death spiral effect, which is what we saw a couple Mondays ago and sent Luna essentially to zero. I think it's hovering around like 13 millionths of a cent or something like that. There's many zeros in front of the first significant figure in its value. Um, so yeah, that, that is the death cycle. So, so this happened in February and it sent Luna prices crashing down, and I think the Luna Foundation Guard, now it's important to introduce this other entity. The Luna Foundation Guard is essentially the central treasury entity of the Luna network. And so this is Do Kwon and a bunch of network insiders who have uh, Luna in the treasury uh, for creating the protocol. The Luna Foundation Guard- Like a, like a pre-mine. Like a pre-mine, like a pre-mine but right? But do they
1: own it or does the Treasury own it? Is it like an entity that owns it or do they they individually own it?
0: It's an entity that has a number of... It's essentially a board that governs this gigantic pot of Luna.
1: But do they hold it for the benefit of Luna?
0: Yes. Right, so they okay. hold it for the benefit of the Luna network. Okay, But they ultimately had discretion over the way the funds were spent. Do we know how many people are on this board? At the time, I believe it was seven, about seven folks, but really, you know, it was gathered at Doquan's discretion. Okay. Right. It was really under Doquan's control. And so you've got this central entity, and they saw what happened to Luna Price because of this death spiral effect in Abercadaver in February. And they said, man, it's not so great that UST gets redeemed for Luna and it can initiate a death spiral at any time. Anyone can really, a, a large UST sell event or a recursive leverage unwinding can really just depeg UST and then send Luna crashing down. And once the train leaves the station, it's really hard to stop. The momentum of this death spiral is uh, buy UST, uh, redeem it for Luna, dump Luna. Um, Luna's price starts crashing down and every incremental UST that gets redeemed sends Luna price even further down. So it's really scary and, and recall that you need Lunar price to be high for a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons you really need it to be high is because you need to sell it to fund the anchor protocol reserve.
1: Do you need it to be high or you need it to be growing in value?
0: You need it to be high and growing in value. So the directionality is also really yeah. important. In an ideal world, it kind of increases in value slowly over time and the system strengthens step by step. Now, what you don't necessarily want is what happened you know, over the course of the last few months, where the Luna price spiked super, super high. A bunch of UST was redeemed, or Luna was burned for UST at a very high value. The supply of UST grows. And then what is UST? UST is essentially a claim on Luna. So you've printed a bunch of claims on Luna while Luna's at a very high price. Then when Luna starts coming down, you have all these outstanding claims, but not enough Luna to pay it back.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So very complex. Yeah. Lot lots of complexity. But let's talk about Bitcoin.
1: But, but but I mean that. But that's an issue in itself. Because like I say, yeah. Interestingly, I've never used the stablecoin. Funny enough, hmm. never used hmm. one. Never had a need for one. I used the pound and I buy Bitcoin. That's that. But I fully understand why people would, like, say, use a stablecoin in certain jurisdictions. And if somebody asked me, I would say, yeah, you should use them. If they ask me which one, well, I mean, I know about Tether. Uh, Dai seems to, you know, up until recently, remain fairly stable. UST was growing in popularity. I didn't know anything about it. But now I'm scared to recommend anything without knowing everything about it. But I don't have the time to learn this. And it's not even just a case of learning. It's very complex. And there's unknown unknowns.
0: It is incredibly complex. I think this is where I'll maybe say something unpopular that I've been beating the drum on. Um, you know, the industry needs selective or the industry needs disclosure. The industry needs norms of disclosure. We need to all look around the table and say, we need to disclose risks to investors, you know, in a really upfront way.
1: I mean, that's what the SEC prefers people to do. And I know it's not popular in certainly in Bitcoin and crypto world to have centralized entities providing any form of protection. Um, but. That's the role of the SEC, is to protect people in scenarios like this.
0: Now, why do we hate the SEC? I think that's worth talking about, right? Yeah. Well, John, if disclosure, why not SEC? At the SEC enforces disclosure, why do not give it to them? Because I think there's a very reasonable pushback that the SEC doesn't know what they're talking about.
1: I think that's very
0: free- reasonable. <laughs> and, and they're not educated. And they could require disclosures that are immaterial or onerous. And... That's why I'm a proponent for proactive disclosure. Self regulation. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's the silver bullet. I'm not saying, hey, we're going to get to a place where nobody gets rugged, but everyone should be able to at least see something like a 10K when they explore a protocol, right? What's a 10K? A 10K is the SEC's mandated public annual disclosure, shareholder disclosure uh for, for publicly listed equities.
1: But one of the big fears that Bitcoiners have is an exchange doing what happened with Mt. Gox again. Sure. People lose their Bitcoin. Sure. And uh Kraken has a uh, proof of reserve. I'm pretty sure they did the whole proof of reserves and you can check their reserve status. Sure. That is a that's I guess their version of a 10K in some ways.
0: Yeah, it's it's something like that, right? But there's there's more to a 10K. There's discussion of risks there are public financials like the financial health of the organization there's what's called MDNA which is management discussion and analysis which is hey here are the insiders takes on how the business is doing and where it's going and it's all MDMA <laughs> something something like that <laughs> um, it's it's just a way to create a norm of uh, of transparency yeah. And everyone, of course, is bound by this legally, you know, centrally, legally structured incentive where everyone has to be a fiduciary, right? The management has to be a fiduciary to shareholders, which means that they have a legal obligation and, in fact, a criminally enforced legal obligation to disclose things. Now, I'm not calling for that, but I don't think it's beyond the pale to say, hey, legitimate protocols should be really upfront. About the failure case, and people should not have to spend many, many hours on a weekend figuring out what the tail risk is of putting a dollar in a savings account.
1: And, and to be honest, in fairness, some of them wouldn't be able to figure it out. These For- things are complicated. I mean, you've—I've you, had you sat here opposite me, explain it on a one-on-one, and there's still bits I'm going, oh, I, don't, I still don't understand that. What the fuck are you on about? So, like. It's a lot for people to expect. And I guess also these these risks change. Like, was this a known risk prior to Abracadabra? Or is it after Abracadabra, it's like, oh, shit, we have this new risk that we weren't aware of?
0: That introduced a new risk. And that's the thing about permissionless markets, right? Is human creativity is unbounded. And where there's money, people are going to want more of it. So the Abracadabra event was kind of an unforeseen event and then what happened with the bitcoin treasury was an unforeseen event um and so yeah it's impossible it's it's almost impossible to know because we're on the frontier of financial innovation here but mm-hmm. that's why it's in my opinion it's ever more important to disclose the risks and people shouldn't see a stablecoin as being as trusted as the US dollar that being said I don't necessarily think the US dollar is a great comparison for these monetary experiments. Because let's think about the US dollar. The US dollar was on the gold standard for hundreds of years before it was lifted in the early 20th century. It's a really long time for a thing to make its way into culture and adoption. Imagine for generations people have been using a currency. Your mother and your mother's mother and your mother's mother's mother all used US dollars. right? there are many other monetary experiments that have failed. You know, Zimbabwe and the Weimar Mm -hmm. Republic and Venezuela. So I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be really careful here and deliberate about how we experiment with finance, but there are many other failed monetary experiments in human history. You know, DeFi is not the first domain for uh, trying to figure out how to create currency and money.
1: Now, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for the future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And do you know what? You can also earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. If you would like to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BlockFi.com, which is B L O C K F I.com. Next up, it is Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it's Ledger. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. With a larger screen, it makes it much easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger user since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you'd like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, from the people behind Sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin Casino and is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences and that money can't buy. BitCasino has 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 a live chat support. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin Casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S i n o dot i o and please gamble responsibly. I mean, it's not even just money; it's tech. There's many failed experiments at a VC level. I mean, the traditional what is it like? They make ten investments, one will break even, and one should make back everything else. One's you know, they get one Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat in, in, in all of those. I think what's happening is we are with these projects and with these crypto protocols. Uh, It was Jill um, Carson who said, and she's changed her name. She's got married, but she said this to me a long time ago. Uh, These protocols are essentially IPOing at C-stage. Yep, that's right. That's essentially what's happening. And where venture capitalists have a long history of analyzing risk and studying founders and monitoring them, perhaps having somebody on the board and keeping a close eye on their investments and having follow-up rounds if they're successful, et cetera, et cetera. That risk is now... In some ways, the VC's taking the very, very, very early bet, and then we've got this kind of—that's like a pre, almost like a pre-seed stage, really. And the seed and the piece, uh, the seed and the IPO has happened at the same time, and all the risk is now being put onto the millions of crypto investors around the world. And what I've noticed, a lot of these VCs are actually getting to exit prior to the collapse of some of these ideas that just are unworkable. I mean, Pantera, I mean, I don't hold it against them, but they managed to, what is it, 1.7 million they put in and they bought away 170 million.
0: Yeah, I saw that that uh, excerpt in the New York Times, yeah. I mean, congratulations to them, but who
1: are the losers for that to happen? Who are these inexperienced investors who aren't ready for this?
0: I don't think we talk enough about, you're touching on a couple of themes here. One is markets are adversarial. Mm-hmm. Don't think for a second someone's not trying to make a buck off of you, Right. And so when we say that's why stablecoins have this special type of danger where you think that there's no failure mode, but actually, it belongs in this extremely adversarial permissionless global tech and financial ecosystem that we call DeFi. People are trying to make it fail, right? People are trying to make a buck. Um, I think the other thing that you're touching on here is that as systems get a lot more complex, there's inherently more trust. There's inherently going to be more of a need for intermediaries. The beauty of Bitcoin is the trustlessness is kind of okay because it's so simple. You know, it's really easy to audit. As you build more and more complex interconnected ecosystems, you begin to introduce trust. You begin to introduce trusting the smart contract dev, the auditor the person who holds the keys to the multi-signature wallet. Um, You begin to trust me. You begin to trust some random guy on Twitter to have done the correct analysis and help you understand that, hey, there's this failure mode. It may happen. It may not happen. And who's to say I don't have financial incentives?
1: Yeah, look, that's a really fair point. Uh, And even Bitcoin is not completely trustless. I had a conversation recently with Adam Back related to the um, CTV BIP119, is that the correct one name? Uh, upgrades recently. And I said, I base my decision, Adam, on trusting people like you and your opinions. I'm not a techie. I'm not a cryptographer. When people are discussing a BIP, I can read the BIP. Uh, do I understand if it's technically a good idea? Probably not. Do I understand whether there's good social consensus around this? Probably a little bit. I can get to a little bit more there. But in the end, if you add them back, say, this is a bad idea, I'm like, hmm, it's probably a bad idea because over the last five years, you've become somebody I trust because I can't make these decisions myself. And what does Greg Maxwell say? What does Andrew Polstra say? I trust Jeremy Rubin a certain amount. I think he's a great guy, but I trust him a bit less because I, he hasn't built that trust model. So the, the yeah. trust exists. So nothing is fully trustless.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. That's right. And, and I was just thinking the other day you know do, do we really want to have an uh, unintermediated relationship with all the products that we use you know I was just uh, I was just out in Brooklyn yesterday at elsewhere leaning against a, a railing and I'm like, how many people have I do I have to trust going back in the supply chain to know this isn't going to collapse under me and I'll fall to my death. Some guy in China extruding a metal pipe, some iron ore worker, some regulator, some guy who's underpaid, you know, on the New York metropolitan staff inspecting this railing. You know, our whole worldview is is built on trust. So the question is, where do we grant it and where do we not grant it, right? And one of the things that, again, I'll beat this drum, that we can do as an industry is start to build that trust by proactively disclosing, by saying, here are the risks, by engaging in that discussion um, publicly. Now Doquan is a pretty flagrant example of not doing that because under collateralized stablecoins are, on some level, faith-based, just like a U- the US dollar is faith-based. Now there are really strong reasons the US dollar keeps its value, um, not least of which is the threat of violence by the US military. but. Some of these things that can fail in in tail cases, you know, they are faith-based. And so, that's why Do quan was very, I don't know what the right word is, um, really outspoken about the fact that it would never fail.
1: Uh, but you, I think you make a fair point that these things aren't, they're different products from the dollar. Whilst the dollar pegged, the different products. I mean, look, the dollar can fail. Currencies have failed. For sure. But, and it can fail for the same reason. The reason is high inflation, at the, not the only reason. We have to be clear about this. Um, some people think the high inflation rate is just because uh, the US isn't printed a whole bunch of money. It's not just because of that. There's other reasons why you get inflation and prices go up. But generally speaking, if you print more dollars, you're going to have inflation and your dollars are going to be worth less. What happened with uh, Terra and Luna is an extreme version of that, but they're almost like dollar derivatives in some way.
0: Yeah. No, for sure. I think in all of this, the dollar has kept its primacy. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we forget is that stable coins are also pegged to dollars and they are experiencing price inflation if you live in the United States.
1: Yeah. Is there any part of that Terra Luna bit we've not covered yet? We didn't
0: talk about the role of Bitcoin. Yes, please. Yeah, talk about that.
1: Because uh, that was one of the things that I thought was, I never jumped on that uh kind of like train of supporting this when i heard they were mm. buying you know normally as a bitcoiner when you hear about tesla buying bitcoin you're like that's that's a super cool thing i love yeah. this uh elon musk is getting behind bitcoin tesla is holding bitcoin that's a super cool thing when i heard about this is like uh i think do Kwon came out and said he's gonna buy 10 billion of bitcoin or something yeah and i couldn't jump on it and i i didn't understand it but, but at the same time i was Every, everything I read about and what Pomp explained to me, I was like, mm, this sounds super risky. These, the, when I see MicroStrategy by Bitcoin, I'm like, they're probably not going to sell that for a very long time if they ever will. With this, I was like, is this just going to add even more volatility in? Sure. I didn't expect the, ext- you know, I wasn't predicting the extremity of what happened, but.
0: A lot of people were bullish on it because they were converting Luna into hard collateral. Yeah. So before, it's. You got UST on one side and you've got Luna, which is, remember, kind of equity in the network on the other. And there's this immediately accessible death spiral. And they were like, man, that didn't go well in February. We need some hard collateral. So let's swap some Luna for Bitcoin. And it's not going to be fully collateralized because we can't, there's not enough liquidity in the world to support selling all of Luna's market cap into backing UST, but let's sell 3 billion of it. Let's make UST twenty percent collateralized by Bitcoin. There are a couple of things that seem a little fishy about this, right? One is it kind of reeks of like an exit. You're selling your equity, you're selling the equity in the network for hard collateral.
1: Well, that's why I compared it to Block One.
0: Mm. I'm actually not familiar with that block was one.
1: EOS, where they ran the uh. year-long ICO and ended up accumulating 100. 20,000 Bitcoin or something or other. That's why it just kind of smelled a bit similar. They found a way of printing Bitcoin.
0: Take a thing whose value is uncertain and trade it for a thing whose value is more certain. Yeah. Okay, but there's also a good stability reason to hold hard collateral, which is it helps give a different escape path from UST. Before the Bitcoin thing, the only way to escape from UST was to redeem it for Luna, which initiates the death spiral like we talked about. But once you have bitcoin in the system, then you can redeem UST for bitcoin. And that doesn't initiate the death spiral. So it kind of gives you this 20% cushion where if 20% of people are redeeming, they'll get bitcoin instead of luna and luna luna's price can kind of remain high.
1: Was that was that an optional thing or was you if you redeemed a dollar of uh, UST you got what 20 cents of bitcoin and 80 80- 80 cents of luna is that is that actually what happened
0: It's not actually what happened in reality it was the Luna Foundation guards discretion to convert bitcoin to use their bitcoin reserves to prop up the UST price Right okay And so rather than the UST price being propped up by Luna they could dump a bunch of bitcoin onto the open market and keep the price of UST high and close to the peg Okay Okay now Maybe the outcome here is obvious, but once ustd pegged, they had to sell all their Bitcoin to your point and it still failed and it still failed. well, a couple of things happened. Number one, it tanked the price of Bitcoin, yep, so it wasn't good for bitcoin holders
1: and and also what I mean their average sell price was way below that. I mean weren't they buying over forty thousand at one point? yes, yeah,
0: yes, so the market actually had anticipated once ustd pegged this failure mode and The Bitcoin markets were already plummeting in advance of Luna's sell pressure because they saw that Luna had all this Bitcoin reserve that they had to use to prop up the UST price. So ultimately, they burned through all their Bitcoin reserves. The amount of demand wanting to get out of the system was too great even for the amount of Bitcoin reserve. And the problem with having a volatile collateral is, well, kind of obvious. When you sell the volatile collateral to cover your outstanding debts, the value of the collateral is dropping as you're selling it. See, one of the things I thought is, it was so obvious it was failing. Why didn't they just hold on to their
1: Bitcoin and let it fail? At least there was, would be a pot of a valuable asset that they could have either redistribute it to investors. I mean, maybe they didn't expect it to fail so badly, but, but maybe people would have got 20% back rather than close to zero.
0: I think it's very hard to know. They, they had this last minute Hail Mary where um, there's a universe in which uh, they could have saved themselves. They kind of distributed the Bitcoin to some of their investors who are market makers as a loan. And so they didn't technically sell it. They just collateralized their own Bitcoin again okay. to their market makers. So they lent the money back out to market makers. And there was a universe in which if the peg had held... They could have repaid their Bitcoin loans at a lower basis okay. and they could have could have made out okay. And I also think there was just faith. You know, UST had survived crazy amounts of attacks like this historically. And I think everyone in the system had faith that it was robust and that it was gonna hold. And here's the thing with these kind of like, you know, long-tail failure modes. It's not over till it's over, you know? It doesn't fail until it fails. And so they had survived, you know, eight D events or something like that previously and they just they just thought this time wasn't any different.
1: Yeah, one of the other things that really stands out for me with this is that they're essentially trying to find product market fit. But with a product or a network that's worth tens of billions. Yes. Really, usually when you're building tech products, yes. product market is usually done with a you know you test with an audience of you know, depending on the product, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, and then you scale up. But the, with these products, you're essentially, because it's just a f- free open market, yeah. and anyone can get involved, these can scale up to tens of billions in value.
0: I think you're, you're pointing out something pretty interesting here, which is, you know, the larger these stable coins are, right, the more adoption there is, and the more stable they're likely to be. But then the worse and more contagious the effect is if it fails. It's almost like you have to be really big in order for it to be stable. Yeah, But once you get that big, the cost of failure is immense.
1: There's also this kind of reputational, industry-wide reputational issue that comes from it. Um, we've seen attacks on crypto broadly. Therefore, that's an attack on Bitcoin because of this. Uh, the amount of calls or emails I fielded from people saying, oh, I heard Bitcoin's crashing. And, right. and um, you know, because of some stable coin. Like I was fielding questions for about a week from people saying, oh, it's all over, or, right. yada, yada. Or, right. I heard. I heard no like people had conflated Luna with Bitcoin. Yes, and said Bitcoin has uh, crashed. I heard loads of people. You know, I had to field all these things, which is just fucking annoying. It's just annoying.
0: Well, you see the headline, right? Like you know, Luna sixty billion market cap goes to zero, and the layperson says, "I knew it. Crypto's a scam." Right? Yeah. It reinforces that notion in their head. And is that good for us? There's this idea of the lemon problem, right? Where if you're unregulated or you don't self-police or you let these things happen, legitimate investors are going to be like, there's a really high probability of me landing on a lemon. I'm going to invest in something and it's just going to be another Luna. And we don't want that, right? We want people to be able to distinguish good investments from bad. And we want legitimate, you know, highly capitalized investors to look at the space with legitimacy. Um, we don't want them to walk away or, or write off the entire space as you know this ecosystem of scams. So uh, yeah, just to beat the drum again, I think we need to disclose risks. We need to be proactive about saying, hey, anyone who doesn't follow the standard disclosure maybe is hiding something. I don't know. Well, yeah, but this, this is where it comes back to that thing where I think some of the large
1: capital of investors are benefiting from this kind of crypto product structure. Like I say, with most uh, VCs, traditionally, they invest in a bunch of ideas and they get one or two winners out of whatever number of investments and that kind of pays for itself. Now, they've completely put the risk of their investments onto other onto the retail. Um, some would argue they do that anyway because most of the things like Snap and whatever tend to drop in price or Uber once they've hit market, Coinbase is similar, but, but anyway, the point being is that they, they get into IPO at seed stage, you know, they, I mean, Multicoin made a huge amount of money on Solana. Sure. Huge amount of money on Solana. Sure. And arguably a lot of these things still don't have product market fit. Sure. And so they get to get the early stage investment. They get to get the expansion as it gets put out to retail you know, they're whatever you want to call it, their pre-mined, their early, what do they call it, their early investor tokens, their, whatever it is. But the risk is put onto everyone else. And the impact is catastrophic on some people's lives. I mean, I mean the, the Lunar Reddit page that day after was like, I think about five of the top eight posts were discussing suicide. It's like, what the fuck?
0: Again, the human toll is, yeah, totally incalculable to me. Um... In addition to the lack of standard disclosure, there's also a lack of standard valuation. You know, Like the, the reason why a 10K is so effective is because we have this like really standard way of describing traditional businesses. And there's like revenue, there's cost of goods, there's operating expenses, there's net income, you know, there are taxes. Like we can read a standard uh, income statement and roughly assess the quality of the business. Crypto tokens are incredibly idiosyncratic. Every single one is explained and designed with different incentives. So even if you do do risk disclosure, I can't really apples to apples compare these different investments. It's actually extremely hard. And oftentimes uh, they're traded on really illiquid marketplaces. And so that's what a standard rug pull is, right? It's Pulling the liquidity from a market and making it so there's no exit path. Um, standard markets are just too deep in terms of liquidity to allow for these types of schemes to happen. Um, I'm not really sure how to fix that. I think in some ways it's an uh, it's it's one of the best opportunities ever for someone who's self motivated and believes in autonomy and self sovereignty. Because if you do your research right and you put in the work. There really is so much alpha to be gleaned by the differences between the different tokens. But to your point, if we're trying to get to mass adoption, is investing in liquid tokens like the right move for the layperson? Someone who can't invest 40 hours trying to understand the Luna failure mode. I'm I'm not so sure about that. Maybe the tokens themselves are utilized and invested in by a subset of people, right? And the users get to use the underlying technology. This is this kind of like segregation of concerns. And again, I'm not calling for the SEC to come regulate the space, but it's something that you know, we should really think about is how to protect investors and how to make us look like we're doing right by the people who support the networks. They probably are gonna
1: come and regulate the space though because these things look like securities.
0: I mean, they're already on top of it, right? Yeah. They're already on top of stuff like Uniswap and they're already, the problem is the SEC is totally outmanned. We can't even keep up with the space. You know, Insiders can't even keep up with the space. Like, I'm not sure how they can understand uh, all the idiosyncrasies of every single token, but we can help. I'm not saying help regulators, but we can help retail investors.
1: I would also question how many success stories of which we actually had here. I mean, bear in mind, like, just to be clear, this this is a Bitcoin show. I'm a Bitcoiner. Um, I see Bitcoin now as a success story. I think it's here to stay. I, I think yeah. unless there is some coordinated global regulatory attempt to destroy it, Bitcoin's here to stay. I think, despite what some listeners might get angry about me saying this, I think Ethereum is arguably a success story in certain metrics, in that it has survived multiple cycles now. You might not think it can scale, you might not like what people use it for, but it has survived. I think there's some still something a little bit interesting in Monero. I've got um, Seth for Privacy coming on the show this week to talk about that, because I want to learn a bit more. Yeah, I love him. I'm not opposed to Monero. I've always been very clear about that. But outside of that, I don't think there's been that many things. If anything else I can say, that has been a success story. There's been a lot of failures. There's a lot of things that maybe have achieved some things technically that are interesting. So your, your measure of success is, uh, it's obviously subjective. But I would say, like, if we use uh, things that have survived in terms of time or price appreciation, I think we've got very, very. I think we've got a handful of success stories in my world.
0: I think, I think we need to think about the segregation between token value and network success, Yeah, right? Fair. Sometimes we conflate them. I, I think Ether is a successful token and Ethereum is a successful network. But there's something like Uniswap where it's not clear what the long-term value accrual mechanism of the Uniswap token is, right? There's maybe this fee switch that's going to get turned on and do revenue share. But Uniswap protocol is undeniably successful. It's the dominant liquidity venue for, you know, ETH to stablecoins. That's fair. It's just done, I think at this point, trillions of dollars of volume, um, fully decentralized and permissionless. Um, But the volume of failure that we've had is huge. For sure. And, And this is where Matt Levine, the Bloomberg writer, would say, DeFi is learning in a couple of years what it took traditional finance thousands of years to learn. And these are all experiments, right? And we kind of have to learn by failure. But that's where this di- disclosure becomes important,
1: because I know each everybody has their um, you know their own choice to make an investment or whatever. But yeah, some people are stupid, some are DGENs, and some people are just caught in the crossfire. Though they've been recommended by somebody. I mean, how many people probably turn around and said, "Oh, you should really take a look at Luna. This is great investment." Yeah because their friends did it. And they've they've not been exposed to the crypto scene. They don't know anything about it. They've lost a bunch of money.
0: Right, I mean, what's the first question you get from somebody who's outside crypto about crypto? For me, it's always, should I buy Bitcoin right now? Yeah. It's not, tell me about consensus mechanisms. Am I late? Yeah, am I late, right? Uh, Am I gonna make money doing this? It's never, hey, help me understand how DAI works, (laughs) Yeah. right? Hey, tell me about the newest BIP or EIP. And so I think it's our job as educators to get people smart about this stuff, right? And if you're not, maybe do maybe take the Warren Buffett approach. Don't invest in something you don't understand. There, there appeared
1: to be a little bit of a contagion effect to other stablecoins. So, uh, Dai is not something I hugely understand, but I know a little bit about it. But Dai seemed to have survived what, like four years? Is it about four years or five years even? Yeah, yeah, and hasn't had any real catastrophic pegging depegging events.
0: There was um. Black Thursday or Black Tuesday, one of the days um, in 2020. Um, this was the March crash, March oh, okay. crypto crash in yeah, 2020, yeah. Where, where Dai had to. Died. Yes, they had Maker had to issue a bunch of Maker to back under collateralized Dai positions. So they've suffered uh, an extreme event, but they made it. You okay. know, it's still alive.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, but outside of that, it's been fairly stable. But but there has been a contagion effect from this on Dai, right?
0: Yeah, and on all stables. Yeah. I, during any period of panic, right? People want to pull out of everything unilaterally. People just get afraid. People think, well, if this, if there's contagion here to Bitcoin, there, why isn't there a contagion to other stablecoins? You know, USDT, tether is completely unrelated, and USDT depegged very, very briefly for a little bit. I think um, that's just uh, us as as human animals, right? There's uh, a little bit of when when panic and fear sets in, uh, people just start thinking irrationally. I, I got so many DMs and messages saying, "Does this mean Tether's over too?" And it's like that's a completely different mechanism, completely different product, works completely differently. There's many reasons to you know be careful around USDT too. Which is completely different, and so I think people, when panic sets in, just yeah, they, they kind of lose their minds a little. There
1: were some large redemptions against Tether, and I I do, I do wonder was that people having a little bit of a fear and thinking, hold on, you know, I'm holding a bunch of Tether here, maybe we should uh, redeem a little bit. Uh,
0: in times like this, there's a flight to safety, and almost every investor I talk to right now is stacking cash because they see deals coming on the horizon. Right, I want cash to deploy when all assets come down in value, whether it's equities or it's crypto or it's real estate people are scared of a global macro recession and they're saying they're thinking back for those who have long enough memory to the last recession and they're saying what did i wish i had at the bottom of the cycle in 2010 2011 i wish i had cash i wish i had loads of cash i would have bought everything yeah at the bottom
1: yeah i i i think i think you're right i I'm quite interesting. it's just a complete separate point but i do wonder because uh you read a lot of stuff whether it's no, he's not popular at the moment, but Rao Powell or Lynn Alden or any of the macro analysts, uh, Luke Woman, there's a very negative sentiment with regards to, especially within um, um, equities or within, uh, even within crypto, I, I would say. But there's this very negative sentiment. But somehow Bitcoin it seems to be holding this price position at the moment where it's it can't seem to get under 28,500. And there's been multiple attempts to take it below it and just I do wonder if Bitcoin's gonna be our safe answer?
0: Yeah, we'll see. It, it does seem to have a lot of strength right now. Um, yeah, it seems very resilient.
1: Yeah, ETH's taken a little bit of a hit this week, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think ETH is gonna be okay though. Uh, but again, I, I, I there's there's a big difference between token valuation and network strength. And if you can think about Ethereum's broader impact, right? It doesn't all accrue to Ether. Think about all of these networks that are aping Ethereum's virtual machine. Avalanche and you know, Solana has an implementation of it called Neon and Near Aurora and Phantom. And there's a, a thousand other chains who recognize Ethereum's network effect and the network effect of Solidity developers. And none of that accrues back to Ethereum.
1: Right, okay. There's two other um, things I want to ask you about. I don't know if you know about it. Uh, some concerns have been raised recently about Steppen, which is not something I've really looked at. Sure. The only thing I want to know about Steppen is: can I like, can I get my dog to run around the yard and earn me tokens?
0: Well, that that goes back to what we talked about, right? Are insane emissions sustainable? Yeah. I think one of my favorite tweets ever was like, "I'm inventing shitting. Can't believe I was. <laughs> I've been shitting for free this whole time, right?" <laughs> There's, and, and there's like this, there's another one called Sexin, which is kind of a joke. Really, the question is, if you're not providing value, do you deserve to get paid?
1: Yeah. But it, but it, is, is Stepan like, is it a good idea? Is it a shit idea? Does the Stepan token, should it, should its actual value be zero? zero?
0: Yeah, I'm not going to judge it because they have, they have two, two they have a, a dual token model where they right. have a, a governance token and they have the. that you earn from walking around. So I'm not hyper-familiar with Stepin, but I would just say that to go to first principles, right? What are you getting compensated for? If you're getting compensated for capital, for providing capital, then you have to kind of ask yourself, why do I deserve that much compensation for capital? And if you're getting compensated for walking, you have to ask yourself, what economic value am I creating from walking? And this is where kind of like play to earn, gets me a little. You can't really do nothing and get paid, right? At least in a capitalist society. You can't really just contribute 0, create nothing of value and get compensated for it. So, from first principles, I get a little worried about any protocol that says we're going to pay you for functionally doing nothing.
1: Does does that mean you are not somebody who supports Ethereum moving to proof of stake from proof of work?
0: No, I don't I I'm I'm not one of those people, although I am concerned that it is one of the biggest steps that the Ethereum network is going to take. There, um, is, a,
1: there is a contradiction there, though, right?
0: There is, there is a contradiction, a little bit. I mean, I would argue that staking contributes to the economic security of the network. Um, but if, you, if your tokens were pre-mined
1: and you can stake, you are essentially getting paid to do nothing.
0: I think that is right. I think there's a very subtle distinction between, again, contributing something as capital or as security, or even for the ether token, right? Locking up a bunch of the circulating supply um, and just making sure that there's less ether in circulation um, and literally just living your life and being alive, right? Stefan is basically just, I'm alive. I'm walking. Yeah, I'm walking, but it can be reduced to something even simpler, simpler than that. And again, not to say anything bad about the project, I, I truly am not familiar enough. And from my understanding, they're looking to create more sustainable methods of token inflation. But um, yeah, I, I really struggle with those concepts.
1: All right, I can't let, leave you. Um, let you leave without answering that point. You said you're, you've got different concerns about this this transition.
0: I think there's just a certain narrative that's been pushed around the proof-of-stake transition, like emissions going down 90% and miners being adversarial to the network and currently proof-of-work miners you know, dumping ether. I know some Ethereum miners and they're friendly to the network. They're not adversarial. And they're not dumping ether right now to cover their electricity costs and the cost of the hardware. They're stacking ether because they're friendlies in the network. Right? Why would you validate for a network you don't believe in? That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they validate for the network. Um, they mine on the network. And they're stacking Ether like the rest of us, ready for the merge. And so there's this narrative that like once the merge happens, it's going to be this huge boon for the Ether token. And who knows, maybe it will be. Um, but a lot of that is premised on this, I think, totally unempirical claim that miners are gonna stop dumping tokens. That might be true. I haven't seen a shred of data supporting it. And so, you know, a lot of crypto lives on these narratives, right? And I just wanna question sometimes, like, is this this based on data? Has someone seen, has someone called up all the miners in the world and say, hey, how much ether are you actually selling into the open market? And how much are you stacking? How much are you trying to recover the cost of this commodity hardware that you're proof of work mining on? And how much of it is already fully depreciated and you're just printing ether tokens that you're just gonna hold onto. Because if every if miners are already friendly and they're already holding onto their ether, then we're not gonna reduce the cell pressure, right? In fact, all of those folks are gonna stake their ether and the proof of stake staking rewards should go down.
1: What's gonna to happen to their mining equipment?
0: That's a great question. I think a lot of people are using it for you know the protocol that I work for, Aztec Network. Is a zk protocol, and so a lot of people are thinking about how to use GPUs to accelerate zero-knowledge proofs. It's also commodity GPU hardware, right? It could just go back into, you know, gamers have been suffering with rising GPU costs for years. Maybe PC gaming gets really cheap over the next few years.
1: With the um, with the merge itself, um, with regards to we mentioned earlier about risks and you know 10k disclosures. Um, do you think there's some unknown un well almost certainly are some unknown unknowns but like do you think people are fully uh, looked into the risks of the merge and what will happen?
0: I think a lot of pay, people are paying attention to the risks are you expecting pain No I'm not expecting pain I I, I I can't say I'm a total pro on the merge risks I think there is this universe where there's this proof of work network that might just exist somewhere right some miners might say, hey' I'm just we're just going to keep supporting the proof of work." fork. And I frankly don't know the implications of that, right? It's like we had Ether Classic after the Dow hack. And now there's like Ether Classic Classic, right? There could be a, a yeah. fork of the network that just continues on with proof of work mining. And there could be some small consortium of protocols or individuals who say, you know what? We we just believe more in proof of work for some reason.
1: Interesting. So we're going to
0: stay on this fork. I think every other reasonable person is going to proof of stake. I think it would be a tiny minority of actors.
1: You'd have to choose, right? Because you can't have, you don't, it's not like you get your tokens both. You have to swap out. Right. Yeah. Whereas when we've had Bitcoin forks, you get to keep both tokens. Mm. With this, you know, would be interesting. Uh, Anything else we've not covered that you would like to have covered?
0: Uh not not really. No. Okay. This well, is a great conversation.
1: We should end things before I get accused of being too shit coin, because people <laughs> are
0: like, what the fuck are you talking about, East? But
1: like while you're here. No, I appreciate it. I, I really wanted to do, uh understand a bit more about what happened with Terra Loon. I think I think a lot of people wanted to hear it and the the thread was great, but hearing you explain it's even appreciate better. It. We will put that in the show notes. So I will make sure people follow you. Um but just tell people if they want to find out more about you or get in touch. How can they get hold of you?
0: Yeah, Twitter at J-O-N-W-U underscore. Awesome, man. Well, look, appreciate you coming and doing this, man. Thanks, Peter.
1: Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, then please head over to the What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.